Man, I look at Joe's picture and I just want to help, say, Help me, Joby One Kenobi. You're my only hope. This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. They also have a terrific backlog of courses you can watch, including JavaScript The Good Parts, Build Web Applications with Node.js, AngularJS In-Depth, and Advanced JavaScript. You can go check them out at frontendmasters.com. This episode is sponsored by the App Quality Bundle, the ultimate tool set for providing better software. It includes six leading tools for one incredibly low price. It's a full-stack set of tools that covers continuous integration, testing, and monitoring for your mobile apps, web apps, and APIs. It's great for new projects and companies. And the offer is $999 for one year of service for all six services. It is available for new paying subscribers only. Go check out the website at buildbetter.software for complete terms and conditions. The offer ends April 15th, so don't wait. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A., Bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the JavaScript Jammer link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash JavaScript This episode is sponsored by Widgmo 5, a brand new generation of JavaScript controls. A pretty amazing line of HTML5 and JavaScript products for enterprise application development in that Widgmo 5 leverages ECMAScript 5 and each control ships with AngularJS directives. Check out the faster, lighter, and more mobile Widgmo 5. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 154 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel we have AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you live, carless and stuck at home. Joe Eames. Hey everybody. Jameson Dance. Hi friends. Dave Smith. Greetings. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that's John Daniel Trask. Hey everyone, thanks for having me. No problem. You want to introduce yourself really quickly? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm the uh, co-founder and CEO of a company that builds a crash reporting product. We're based out of uh, Wellington in New Zealand, which is why I sound a bit slow sometimes. And we pretty much have customers all over the world, so I'm, I'm bouncing around. So today I'm, I'm talking to you from uh, our office in uh, San Francisco. Oh, wow. I was going to say, what what time is it there in Wellington? But I guess it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would be 9 a.m. in Wellington, but uh, yeah, 1 p.m. here, so we're all good. So did you sleep in this morning then? No, no. On these trips, I, I come over to the U.S. about once a month, and uh, you know, it's usually I try and pack everything in. I was up uh, seeing the guys at Microsoft last week and checking in with customers and checking in with staff and a whole lot of random things. So there's actually very little sleep, and there's a lot of drinking, so <laughs> it's, it's quite hard. Very nice. <laughs> Sounds adventuresome. Let's just say that. So uh, we brought you on today to talk about error reporting and I guess crash reporting and things like that. Do you want to kind of give us a brief overview of your background so that we kind of know where to go with this? Yeah, sure. Um, so 
super long story condensed down quickly. I started coding at a young age, around nine, and I just loved writing code. And uh, so I've always been trying to build companies around software. So I, I've been coding for a while. These days I don't actually code so much. I went into the industry, uh, worked in one of the larger uh, IT services companies in New Zealand, and then decided that it was time to sort of get into the game myself and, and start a business. Uh, so I coded for the first few years in that business along with my, my business partners. And uh, eventually we happened along build, building this product, Raygun, at raygun.io. And so that started to do really well for us. And so the company's been growing and we have you know a bunch of engineers. So I don't, I don't code very much uh, anymore at work, but I still do a bunch of coding um, at home and in the weekends, you know, uh, to keep my skills sharp. Uh, I still enjoy, uh, basically I'm a, I'm a sort of 50-50 programming and business guy so that's my sort of background i'm also a microsoft mvp i speak at a bunch of conferences and obviously on podcasts as well so that's kind of me in a in a nutshell very cool now raygun.io does it collect error reporting crash reports whatever from uh node.js front-end javascript it does it from everything. So uh, we sort of reached the conclusion that, uh, you know, it's not the late 90s anymore and the sort of polyglot approach of using lots of different languages and platforms has become pretty pervasive. Even even within a, you know, for a single developer, you might be using three or four different uh, programming languages. So we wanted to build something where we would handle the data stream of problems from from any of those platforms. Within companies, I mean, it gets even worse. You can have, you know, Java team, .NET team, everybody's using JavaScript in the front end. We kind of tend to work mostly with uh, Microsoft.NET on our back end. We have a little bit of Go in there and a bit of Node.js as well. And then, of course, JavaScript sort of, I kind of call JavaScript a, a horizontal language because no matter what programming language you're, you're working in, when you put something on the web, you're sort of forced to use JavaScript for the front end anyway. So it, it's really for any developer that's in there. We sort of have found that JavaScript's becoming probably one of our, our most commonly used languages to report errors from because people are building more and more elaborate sort of front ends on their systems, whole apps, you know, and so... Discovering what's breaking in there is, is super important, and it's really hard to see those sort of breakages just from server logs. So so what process do you go through, or what process do you recommend your customers go through when they run into an issue? Well, first of all, I, I don't actually think that a lot of businesses or developers are doing it very much around the software failures that occur. I think it's a sort of an emerging space that's becoming an expected tool slowly. And obviously, it would be good for me if it became an expected tool overnight. But I think we started to see a lot of interest in crash reporting sort of out of the Ruby on Rails community. And then it really sort of uh, became super obvious when uh, mobile started taking off because all of these people were building mobile apps and you didn't get any insight to what was going wrong uh, with the software on, on people's phones. So I typically start with doing something is better than nothing, is my advice. And then very quickly, it's not to just send yourself an email or something on every error, uh, which is, you know, we used to see this in the services game was that some developers were very diligent and they would they would notify themselves on global unhandled errors um, and just email themselves and others wouldn't do anything. But the ones that did, what would inevitably happen is software is so, uh, so buggy and error prone that you slowly desensitize yourself 
to all of the emails about the crashes and you start actually missing the occasional really important one. Um, so that's when you start wanting to build a better tool around crash reporting to do things like error grouping. So you've got root cause analysis type uh, capabilities in there. Um, you want to be able to suppress, say, notifications from old browsers or from crawlers and, and, and things like that so that the system is sort of only giving you a very high level of signal to noise uh, so that you can take more action on it. So generally speaking, if you're not doing anything, you should do something. And then if you're doing something, are you sort of doing it in a way that you're not just going to desensitize yourself to the data stream and then miss when something really critical does break? That's been a problem I've encountered in past lives before I became smarter. If errors seem useless, everyone just puts an email filter in and then they never look at them again. If they're too noisy, they're worse than if they don't happen at all. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the constant things we're working on is how do we make it so that the signal is high. I mean, a classic example, when we were building Raygun, you know, we dog-fooded and instrumented our own website. And we were getting a lot of, you know, a bunch of noisy, spurious robots calling, you know, crawling the site, triggering erroneous sort of 404s and things like that that we didn't really care about. Um, and if it wasn't for the grouping, so to put it in context, let's say you have 10,000 errors reported. That might only be 10 groups, you know, and what happened was, is I, <laughs> this kind of goes, maybe goes to show why I don't write so much code anymore. I'd actually made this change just before Christmas to our uh, online store and I had broken the payment method. So that was, that was pretty poor. And if it had, if I hadn't been getting sort of grouped notifications, like, bring it down to that 10 rather than say 10,000, I probably would have completely missed for the longest time that the payment process was broken. It was only because I could quickly see 1 in 10, well actually, this you know I've screwed this up, and it would, which was pretty good because I would have gone away for Christmas and come back and thought, gosh, sales are a bit quiet, I don't know what's going on there. Uh, so it actually <laughs> saved our bacon a wee bit, you know, so I, I kind of joke that you know it's, it's important that when anybody tries a product that they reach an aha moment really quickly unfortunately um well fortunately for people i guess they don't often break their payment system immediately after installing an error tracker <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> so i'm a little curious too what kinds of errors are the most common ones that you see come in <laughs> most common errors well i mean it varies from oh wait wait i gotta platform. i just need to guess it's undefined as not a function <laughs> yeah, I was gonna, I was going to say basically anything relating to the world of null references is <laughs> is pretty much a go to sort of uh, error problem. I tell you something else that we had to fix a while ago, which was not really fix but improve, and it's specifically in the world of JavaScript, which is. We receive a flood of JavaScript errors from various browsers, and there's two problems here. One, an error that occurs in Chrome, but is the same error, can look different between Chrome, Firefox, and IE. So we would get three groups, and that was kind of annoying. And so we put in some smarts to make sure that we could actually kind of convert them between the different browsers so that you'd get one group, and we can tell you, hey, this affects Chrome and Firefox, but maybe not IE. And then secondly was, uh, it's kind of, you know, again, the, the Microsoft guys kind of obviously, they localize things a lot. And so they actually localize error messages in IE to a whole range of different languages. And that meant that if we didn't get a trace, because we do the grouping based on stack traces, 
if we didn't get a stack trace, uh, we would have to default back to message-based grouping. And suddenly you'd get about 25 different groups because if somebody was running a you know German version of Windows and you were running English and somebody else was, I don't know, running a Russian version, you'd get three different groups that all had different messages because Microsoft was kind enough to localize the message into the user's browser's uh, locale. So I put some smarts in for that. So again, trying to bring that sort of noise down, improve the signal. But JavaScript is a really interesting space to do the crash reporting because there's a whole whole school of things you have to do for that due to the different browsers. So do you want to get into all that or is it too low level to talk about? No, I mean, I've covered some of the high-level bits there around the the cross-browser grouping, but um, one thing I'm starting to see more of is people using source maps with their JavaScript files. Do you guys sort of generate source maps for your JavaScript after minification? I don't. I do. Right. So we're typically finding that not everybody does generate source maps here because it's a little bit clunky to do it, but... For those that are curious what a source map does, it's a small file that effectively you know, uh, allows you to minify the JavaScript, but then turn it back and generate stack traces that actually relate to the unminified version. So if you see that E is not defined, line 1, position 38,980, that's really not useful to you as the actual developer. And a source map allows you to firstly figure out what the symbol was before minification. So E might actually be, say, a, a symbol like the word width or the, effectively the name of the property or function that was failing. And then it will also sort of realize that because it's turned it into one long string, it'll be able to say, well, actually, it's not on line one at position 38,900. It's actually on line, say, 450 position three. So it really helps developers more quickly sort of jump in and see where the error occurred in their own code base. And there's a growing sort of support for source maps. So um, tools like Chrome DevTools will automatically try and pick them up if you've got the map file sort of referenced or in there beside the JavaScript to make it easier to debug with the DevTools. So in my way of thinking, if you're a good net citizen and you're minifying your files to improve the load time of web pages, it's pretty important that you want to put a, a map file in there to help you debug it when, when crashes get reported, especially when you're building really, really big apps. Say you're, say you're using something like Angular or Backbone or whatever, the front end, and you've actually got thousands and thousands of lines of JavaScript. It's, it's pretty useful. The other thing, is, as an aside, is some people don't like to put their uh, map files on their public service, so we also allow people to post those in um, using an API call so that they only share them with us. Uh, again, especially those really rich apps where they've put a lot of work into that front-end JavaScript library. Hmm. I've got a question for you, then. Why don't you generate source maps? Because I'm lazy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't do it because Chuck's lazy. <laughs> well, let's talk about that. For you. How well, honestly, complicated just, is the process? Well, I'm using the, the Rails asset pipeline, and it doesn't do that by default, and I just have never gone to the trouble well, to figure out there, how to do it. There's your problem. <laughs> yeah. Found it. Chuck doesn't yeah. do it because Rails. That's right. <laughs> no, well, the, I mean, the day is coming when you won't be able to make a JavaScript app of any significance, in my opinion, without source maps. It's just yeah. a matter of time. Yeah. I, so I, any app without source maps is insignificant. There's your definition. <laughs> Nailed it. I, I, that's a little trick I call logic. Yeah. We're going to start fights here, guys. Well played. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, 
one of the things, I, I mean, the default guide, I think, that we have published uses, uh, I think it's Uglify or something like that to generate it, and that involves running a you know node process. The thing is, more and more tools are starting to bake it in. So our company builds a few other products outside of Raygun. One is uh, Web Workbench, and that's a Microsoft community sort of focused project. And that just allows you to generate source maps by pretty much ticking a box beside the JavaScript files in your solution. And that's in use, I think, by about a quarter of a million developers today. But you, you definitely want to have it so that map file generation is super easy. Certainly, the, maybe the Rails guys could make it a default or something. Yeah, it may be in there. It uses Uglify by default, so... Right. So well, I think part yeah. of the issue probably is that if you're developing, you're probably not minifying and uglifying while you're developing. So the developer themselves probably sees the value of a source map a lot less, especially if it's not something you're doing a ton of in-production debugging. And so you end up not doing it until all of a sudden it's like, oh, I got this horrible problem, only occurs in production, now we really need source maps. Unless you just kind of get in the habit. Until you see the value, I think a lot of people don't bother. Absolutely, absolutely. It's another I mean, that's thing. just like your product, right? Until you see the value, <laughs> then you're not bothering with, oh, we don't need errors. We don't need error reporting all of a sudden. Oh, we've got a horrible problem. We can't fix it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the thing that we find is it's twofold. It is something's gone wrong in, uh, in production. And I think I probably speak for all of you guys, but tell me if I'm wrong, that when you get, hey, so the app's not working. Here's a screenshot inside a Word file. Does it help you fix it? And you're like, what the hell is this? I can't, you know. Uh, and again, epic sigh. <laughs> yeah. I saw one of those this week. In fact, in <laughs> fact, there was a scrollable area in the app, and the user wanted to show us all the scrollable area. So the user scrolled the area, took a screenshot, scrolled it a little more, took a screenshot, scrolled it a little more, took a screenshot, oh, put all no. of them in a Microsoft Word doc. It was just wonderful. Oh. It's one of those things, though, isn't it? Where, like, the user is trying really, really hard to help you. They've obviously put a lot of work into that. And you're yeah, like, kudos, oh. kudos to them. <laughs> yeah, but oh, it's a pain in the butt. And, of course, it's happened in their browser, in the JavaScript world at least. I mean, we do more than just JavaScript, but we'll focus on that. But you have no insight into it if you don't report on it. And, uh, I mean, one of the crazy things we found was that, again, while dogfooding, we, we sort of instrumented all of our other products with Raygun. And what we found was that only about 1% of users ever tell you that something was broken. And what we subsequently found was that we made more sales by improving the quality of the software because when we were people running the trial period, you know, if something breaks or has a problem, they tend to just go, they walk away from it. Now, we don't sell Reagan as a product to businesses for their marketing teams, but we actually found that it reduced our cost to acquire customers because the trial and period of using things wasn't as buggy. You know, it was a better quality experience. So firstly, it's helping your, your sort of developers get insight into things that they would struggle to get the information about to be able to reproduce it in the first place. And that's cool. But secondly, actually, and this is a bit embarrassing, is usually discovering how many other bugs you've got in your software that you just didn't run into on your own dev machine. And that can be a bit frightening. I mean, we have customers who sort of talk to us and go, oh, yeah, we think we might generate, you know, 2,000 errors a month. And they put it in. It's like, yeah, you're generating like, you know, 15 million errors a month. Um, <laughs> so people really have no idea <laughs> how bad things can be. So one issue that's trickier about client-side error reporting is you don't control the environment. 
at all. I mean, on the server, you run everything yourself. On the client, you're dealing with Chrome extensions and ads that inject JavaScript. And how do you manage error reporting in such a hostile environment or such a, I guess, an unsanitized environment? Unsanitary. <laughs> Unsanitary. Yeah, that's a good way to uh, I, I was thinking inconsistent, but... Think yeah. grosser. <laughs> Incontinent. <laughs> Think double deck outhouse. <laughs> oh jeez. Um, it's grosser. Don't look up. Yeah. <laughs> it's the yawning that's the problem. Yeah, I mean it's a great question. I mean the big thing we see is two separate areas that cause fault. One is third party JavaScript files that are just erroneous and you can't fix them. So a classic case is say, Facebook like button or a Twitter share button and it throws errors. But they're not critical errors. So, you know, they're, um, one, you're not going to, you know, rock over to Mark's house and be like, yo, Zuck, let's fix this script up. So you don't want to be concerning yourself with that. And so within the system, we have this sort of workflow where you, you have, uh, four different states where you can, you have active errors. So the other, the errors that are still occurring, you haven't done anything about them. You have resolved errors. That's pretty self-explanatory. There's just ignoring errors, which is, hey, just take it off the list for now, but if it happens again, it'll pop back in. But then lastly, and super importantly, is this idea of a permanently ignored error. And so you can jump in and go, oh, that error happened in the Facebook library. I'm never going to fix that. Permanently ignore it. Never notify me about it again. Like, it's outside of my sphere of influence, so it's gone. And so... There's an element where you actually can train the system to not bother you with stuff there. So anyway, the other uh, thing that occurs, and this happens, I don't believe that this happens in Firefox, but I could be wrong. But in Chrome, the extensions that you install actually run in the same, effectively, the user space that the JavaScript executes in. And so early on, we were like, man, some people are getting some really weird errors occurring. And it was because people had buggy extensions that were in there that would actually trigger the window.onerrorunhandled uh, exception <laughs> mechanism in JavaScript. Thankfully, again, though, this is a place where you can actually permanently ignore things uh, triggered by those. And because we are effectively fingerprinting every exception we receive and then grouping them up. So you just get rid of the group. So it's a very quick and efficient way of getting rid of things. You can also do other things like merge groups together. Uh, if you kind of go, hey, this error and this error are actually pretty intimately connected, put them together for me. So there are two ways that, you, that we have to sort of handle the fact that, yeah, you're kind of, you're playing in somebody else's turf. One thing that I'm wondering about, and I could see this with these kinds of errors that you're talking about with somebody else's library or with the you know the plugin that you've got in there how do you determine where the issue actually is so sometimes i've seen this in pretty much every programming language i've used you get a stack trace and you can look through it and you can pretty well say okay you know this is the code that i control and yes this is where the problems occurring but sometimes it's also cryptic that it's really hard to determine where the issue is does that make sense how do you make it so that you can actually instrument it and figure out where the problem lies for those stack traces and other information that don't give you a good handle on where things are. Yeah, so, I mean, that's a valid question. Sometimes uh, you kind of, effectively, you know, software almost behaves in a way that misdirects you, I guess, is where you're, you're going with that. There's a couple of things that we do. I mean, 
typical case actually is when people are confused is normally that they need to set up source maps because <laughs> the stack trace was not helpful to begin with. There's not a lot we can do where it's a, an overall just like logic based issue relating to the structure of your own code like you know errors that have bubbled up from somewhere down you can of course send errors manually so if you had a particularly troublesome area of your code base in javascript you can go and you know effectively set it up with a try catch type block handle the error and still send the error details off to raygun so for example i often suggest that to people uh, when they do have these really really rich applications that they should probably just write good error handling code in those blocks but record when they're hit so that you can you can kind of see what's going on the other thing you can do with that is um, you can tag and attach custom data to any exception that you send to our, our service. And so that means that perhaps you've got modules, you might set the current tag for the module that was executing, or you might set a current tag for an action that was taken, and that kind of gets bolted into the exception report. You can filter on that and do whatever you'd like with it later on, but that can help people. The sort of way that it typically works is that people get started and they use the window dot on error stuff as the you know, just to get started. And that gives them, I think that gives people a lot of value right off the bat. But then once they're sort of on board, you know, they should probably look at how they're doing their error handling within the app itself. Do you find that people write their own errors? I don't see very many people do that in any language I use where they actually raise my own exception or throw my own error yeah, they, they don't typically do that so much in JavaScript. They certainly do it in languages like, you know, Java and .NET and Ruby a little bit, I guess. But you can simply, you know, you can put something in to try and catch that an error occurred that you weren't expecting and then sort of tag to or put custom data in there about what was going on. I'm talking about being able to sort of put a little bit more context in there that you as right. the developer would be the only one to understand what you were actually trying to do. You can almost imagine like commenting in, a, in an area where you're like, well, this could blow up if, you know, XYZ third-party service wasn't working, you know, and you might want to just tack that in as a custom message uh, on the exception. So you just catch and then send to Raygun even though you weren't the one throwing the exception. One of the things we've also done is, is generally tried to build in support for various frameworks. So, you know, we've got some pretty good support around Angular and, and Ember and, of course, jQuery in there because some of these frameworks either try and implement their own way of handling errors, which can sort of obfuscate some of the details a little bit, or alternatively, I mean, for example, Angular tries, you know, will try and generate these really long messages where it's sort of trying to generate a bit of a call stack as part of the message, which is a bit different to anything else. And in jQuery's case, you know, it'll end up where we can hook in and wrap things like Ajax calls to track when there's errors coming back from those calls and, and be able to provide that, which may not necessarily be surfacing as uh, normal JavaScript exceptions. So can you give some more concrete examples of how you, what you do with the frameworks? The cleanest and most obvious one there is is that jQuery one, which is, you know, there's all those nice Ajax helpers that you get with jQuery. And so and jQuery is super pervasively used. Uh, so what we do is we will wrap those helper functions, like, again, you're stretching my developer memory here, but there's like a dot Ajax call that you can make. Now, if something goes wrong inside your, uh, you know, your uh, callback handler for that. We often can't get very much data about that. So unless we actually wrap that call ourselves and do some work in there. So that's a classic case. Hmm. Yep. Are the uh, bigger frameworks, are they actually 
pretty difficult to work with, Angular, Ember, React, or are they, is it just a couple little things here and there? React's not too bad. I mean, that's just the uh, you know view framework, so it's not trying to do quite as much, which is quite nice. Angular, with its message generation, gets a little bit out of hand because you can get you know many many kilobytes worth of message on the uh, on the error that's being thrown, which is just a bit weird, and it doesn't help our customers if they have stupidly long messages on them. So we do a bit of work. And the thing is, what it's worth noting, I mean, I've, I've kind of implied it here, but we obviously have some smarts that operate in the actual JavaScript client library that we have available. But every single provider that sends data to Raygun, whether it's Raygun for Ruby, you know, Raygun for Node, Raygun for JS, on the server side, the processing of those messages is handled by different bits of code. So like the grouping logic is specialized for the JavaScript type errors and things like that. So that's where we can apply some logic after the send to go, oh, this this is an Angular-related issue. Maybe we should do some work on that message to make it actually uh, you know, a bit more human-friendly, things like that. So there's, there's two parts to trying to support the frameworks, the bits that are in the, in the client library and on the server side. Hmm. So on the client side, uh, one of the things that makes JavaScript exceptionally difficult to debug, by the way, did you see what I did there with exceptionally, <laughs> um, is that uh, sometimes the current synchronously executing call stack is not that valuable unless you also have the asynchronous components that went into that call stack. For example, if you do an AJAX request, I'd like to know you know, what data actually was the input to the AJAX request, but sometimes when the uh, AJAX response comes back and, ex- and an error is raised at that point, it's hard to marry those two up. Does Raygun help you with that? Raygun can help you with that. So that, that comes a little bit into uh, things like wrapping those AJAX calls to, to sort of see what goes wrong with it. I would have to do a quick check to see whether we're automatically putting in the, the values that we're, we're sort of being passed around. But even if we're not, you can tag them on as custom data really easily. Uh, we do tend to try and collect pretty much everything we can. Uh, one of the more common things that we hear from customers, especially you know the bigger bigger corporations that are using it, they're obviously concerned about privacy. So by default, we try and collect everything we possibly can, but we always have a lot of hooks and events uh, that allow them to sanitize that data before it's sent to us. So we'll try and pull in, but for example, let's say you were firing an AJAX request that was for a login you know, and we've got the username and password, probably don't want to send that off to us. So we've got a really uh, super easy way of doing filtering and, and doing rejects against uh, key value pairs and things like that. So after doing this for so long, do you find yourself being, like, judgmental about other people's code? <laughs> no, I, I don't think you can... Uh, I, know, I, I don't think anybody can become a programmer and not be humbled, no matter how good they are, uh, you know, by their own poor coding <laughs> efforts. Um, <laughs> so, no, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I mean, sometimes I find things hilarious, but I'm not <laughs> judgmental. Uh, for example, a uh, good buddy of mine, he, he uses Raygun, which is good. And they ended up where they were tripping an exception on the mouse move event. And, oh, and, no. so, oh, wow. yeah. and so I was like, wow, our, our data rates really, I mean, a, a, as a guide, our highest throughput to date has been 110,000 crash reports per second being sent to Raygun. Uh, so, I mean, it's a, it's a nice. popular product. 
but that was a, a case where, yeah, somebody had broken something really badly and, <laughs> and sent a lot of data. And that's one of the challenges with JavaScript error reporting in general is that, you know, you're effectively DDoSing yourself because it's all coming from the, <laughs> the end user's machines, um, which is which is fun. Yeah, I mean, I did, I did a, a presentation recently on writing high-performance software because it, as developers, we usually all like to write stuff that can handle lots of load. And um, it, it's kind of cool being in a position now where we, we are dealing with some, some uh, you know, hard problems. I mean, they're not, they're not sort of Amazon-level performance problems, but they're, they're getting to be pretty big performance challenges, and that's a lot of fun. you really got to start to think. I love that, DDoSing yourself. <laughs> Yeah, Isn't it so true with errors, though? I mean, yeah. it, it's like you you can plan for load, but when you screw up, you know, your errors can just shoot for the fences. You don't even know. Right. Yeah, I mean, the, the worst case we've seen was one customer that has about two-thirds the user base of Twitter did a Big Bang V1 to V2 release, and they didn't roll it out. They did, like, you know, piecemeal, they just went all in and effectively every interaction with the service blew up. And so that that sort of was you know, a big problem. It's kind of interesting. It's a bit, We have very lumpy rates for, uh, for data coming in. I mean, we've processed you know, billions and billions of exceptions, and we're, we're currently um, working towards a new, you know, a new ingestion and processing pipeline that's designed to handle billions of uh, messages per day. But I imagine you're a little bit like Twitter. You've got to plan on just for the rare exceptions when things go pretty poorly. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have this story that I, I like to tell people that, you know, when we first launched which was, uh, the Raygun product, which was in February 2013, and we tried practicing all the good software development things, you know, don't prematurely optimize, yada, yada, yada. And it was like, okay, well, this thing's working pretty well. And so one of, I want to say one of, like, the first three customers to sign up was a top 10 Facebook game. And they just decided to like log messages to us. So every time somebody did anything in the in this game, it would send us a message. So literally, like on day three, you know, <laughs> the servers were in flames, and you know, it was like, oh, good work, not maturely optimizing. Way to go! Um, so, so that was fun. Huh. So, a- do you do like some kind of like? tactics to try to cut down on the number of messages if they get crazy like debouncing things and grouping batching them up or uh we have a whole bunch of hooks in there so people can like not send subsequent errors i mean the big thing is usually is is more those third-party scripts for people so once we put that feature in and talked with uh, some of our bigger customers you know that massively reduced the inbound rate but on the whole, I mean, one of the things that we've done, which is not a bunch of our competitors, for example, they they will sample the data. They don't store everything. We've taught, sort of taken the, the approach, rightly or wrongly, that we will actually store everything that you send us. And you can go through and you can look at all those reports. And the good thing about that is it means that if you're storing custom data or you're sending us any user data, so we have a feature where you can tag users. So if you had, say, for example, authenticated an authenticated system. So imagine, say, eBay, 
you know, you can set the user details like an email address and name, and that'll be attached to the report for who had the problem. And then when we receive that, we, we actually have a report where you can go in and see who were the users that were affected by this crash. And then that integrates with tools like Intercom and just with your email client so that you can fire off a message to those users if you want when you've actually resolved the error. Sort of the use case that we've, we've sort of seen with some of the early users is the ability to say, oh, these 10 users had a problem in our checkout flow. We fixed it up and we sent them a notification to say, hey, sorry about that problem you had on our, on our checkout flow yesterday. We've now resolved it and pushed it to production and we've credited your account $10. You know, so we, we're trying to turn those really crappy software experiences into situations where those, those sort of 10 users are going, holy crap, this company is way different to every other vendor that I've been working with because they seem to actually care about what I'm doing and they've fixed up the problems. I think users have been overly trained by you know, the old uh, PowerPoint stop responding or Finder is locked up. Do you want to send the error report to Apple? You know, to kind of go, why the hell would I? And, and it doesn't appear to change anything. So we're trying to shift that dynamic. So I like I'm, that. That I'm, sounds cool. I'm, I'm curious. You've got to have done a bunch of work to instrument JavaScript or, you know, have your library hook into things in such a way that you're getting all kinds of good information. If I'm trying to just get basic information out of my application, what what kinds of things can I do to gather the information that I need? Just to to dig into your question, basic. Do you mean relating to crash reports or just general like how just general debugging? Yeah. So, or even if I get the crash report, you know, how can I dissect it and then you know figure out where the problem really is? Because you know sometimes it's obvious. I, I did ask this kind of question before, but I, I guess what I'm asking is is you know it doesn't always tell you where to go to duplicate the bug. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, if it's a garbage-in, garbage-out system, right? So mm-hmm. if literally the browser can't give us anything of use, it's not probably going to help you a lot other than knowing that something was not going well. The upside there of tying it to something like, say, the affected user tracking would be that you might actually kind of go, oh, well, we actually, we're friendly with that customer. I'm just going to give them a call or an email and say, well, you know, what were you just doing in there? Now that's that's one example. Um one thing I have to say is it's been it's it's been really really helpful to JavaScript developers in general to see the improvements around exception management in the browsers themselves over the last sort of six to twelve months. Twelve months ago, or even eighteen months ago, you know, getting that column number was rare. You got it in Chrome. I don't think Firefox was doing it properly on the global era thing, so it was really a lot harder to find information out about crashes. So if you had minified and you just had an exceptionally long message, even if you made a source map, you couldn't figure it out. So we're doing everything that we can do to try and make the, uh, you know, give you as much information as you can, but. You know, if somebody's, if one of your end users is still running IE six, and you know, there's, there's, there's not very much in the way of any information we can give you. We just tell you what we can. So the other question so, I have is, besides source maps, then how can I make sure that the best information is being sent back to a system like Raygun or whatever? Well, one of the things you can do is filter the data in our system, um, so by browser. So, for example, let's pick on browsers again because they're, you know, they're easy to pick on. Some browsers were better than others at doing this, at the capturing the error information. 
you basically, for example, uh, used to get really good quality information out of Chrome. So we made it so you could filter and say, just show me the errors about Chrome, because then I know I'm going to get the best quality stack traces. I'm going to understand what's going on better than, say, if I was getting a, an older version of Firefox. So that that helps. But it's a, it's an ongoing challenge. So I found the best tool for me in helping like track my errors is I... I'm now using promises for everything. Like once it got standardized and it wasn't a question of like, is it this library or is it that library or is it this standard or that standard? Like once it was declared promises are holy and we can use them now, I started doing everything with promises and oh my goodness, like errors are not a problem. I mean, they are a problem, but they are nowhere near the problem they used to be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I would have to... I have this general view about JavaScript. Like I said, I've been, been writing code a long time, and I still remember playing with JavaScript uh, back in the 90s and just being like, oh, my God, put a gun to my head. This is the worst thing ever because it was such a a loose and relaxed language, which kind of some people like. That's cool. But it's really great seeing that the improvements, I think, that are coming to the language in general to make it better for building these, these bigger apps because I sometimes – I. I used to have this joke, and this is probably about the most offensive place to tell it, uh, given the podcast is about JavaScript, uh, which is that JavaScript becoming super popular over the last five years is the best example of Stockholm Syndrome that I've ever seen. <laughs> you have no other option, right? <laughs> and I remember back in the 90s, it was like, JavaScript sucked, and you used it to like turn on a div or something. Like I don't even think we used divs then. No, but, they were tables. Yeah. And then it was kind of like, it was kind of weird because then everybody started kind of going, well, JavaScript's actually really awesome. And I'm like, that's cool. Awesome compared to what? It's like, well, it's just awesome because that's all there was. However, what we've seen is that as the industry kind of decided it was awesome and started doing more and more and more advanced stuff with it, I think we're really stretching the language and getting in things like promises and a whole range of stuff that's coming in like script 6, you know, it's looking really cool and like it's actually going to add a bunch of great stuff to help build better quality solutions. I think that's actually a really good analogy, the Stockholm syndrome idea, because it is all that we have. And <laughs> you know, like I hate PHP with a passion. I'm like the uh like the numero uno PHP basher of all of Utah. If you look on those like uh, those GitHub lists for like <laughs> most expert in, like PHP bashing has I'm number one, I promise. <laughs> and uh, then people are like, but JavaScript's just as bad. And I like my response is kind of like, well, but you have to use JavaScript. What's your excuse with PHP? You know? Yeah. But I do yeah. think that the JavaScript, you can choose to use the good parts. And I guess I kind of came in when the whole good parts methodology was being adopted. So like I didn't use JavaScript back when people were doing really idiotic things like document.write. I came in when Crockford had like laid down the iron fist and people were just like shaking their heads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, one of the things I quite liked, um, and, and I know this can sometimes be uh, a bit controversial as well, but I quite liked CopyScript because, so the way I like to code, you know, it enforced a bunch of sensibilities on me. And, and the simplest example being things like, you know, double equals compiles to triple equals, so I get my type checking. It's like little things like that I found quite nice. And, I mean, I know some people either love it or they hate it, but there's a whole lot of stuff that's been going on. I just think there's a lot of smart people now, like, looking at JavaScript and coming up with some really cool improvements to it on the whole, whether it's to compile to it or actually improve the fundamental 
So we've talked a bunch about the front end. We haven't talked about as much about the back end. So for Node.js, does the story change a lot, or is it more or less what you would expect from any other error issue tracking system? We run a separate provider for Node uh, called Raygun for Node. <laughs> um, you'll notice a pattern there. But it's been specifically built for Node.js crash reporting because you know there's other libraries that you want to use in there and and various things it's i mean it's we haven't had basically we we could pull out a bunch of things and especially on the server side of that grouping for example there's no need to pay any attention to hey did this error come from ie or uh, firefox so we have a node provider it does a good job it has all the same methods for user tracking and filtering as all the others but i don't think there's anything particularly special worth mentioning about it it does good stuff Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you use one one system on the front end, one system on the back end, and then you just you get completely separate buckets for all of your errors. Yeah, we tend to we use the terminology of creating an application in Raygun, uh, which is a purely um, sort of logical container for you. So let's say, for example, I'm running a a small shop. And we have one system, it's a website, it has a couple of back-end workers, it has a rich client front-end. Now, I might call that one app. And the thing is, I could be using, say, Java on the back-end, so using Raygun for Java on that. The worker processes might be written in Go, and I'll use Raygun for Go, and then Raygun for JS on the front-end. And that's one bucket. And they'll all flood in there, right? And they're all grouped using their own fingerprinting for the different providers and things like that, and you're getting a whole picture. But then, let's say, you know, Charles, you're a very successful guy. You you know, you've got this huge software company, uh, and you have one system. Let's say your software company's Amazon, right? And you might actually have a whole team of people that just own one tiny piece of the app. Maybe it's the recommended products. You could make that, you know, an app in Raygun itself. So it really comes down to how you want to configure up how you view your system. And we do have a global dashboard as well where you can pick the various things and combine them together to see a, a full picture. If you were, a, for an example, an Amazon who wanted to say, hey, show, show me all of our services all together and what's the overall chart of error rates doing? Is it going down? Is it going up? We need to know. So, AJ, did you get a chance to ask your question? Well, it was more like my comment talking about you know, promises have just been really what's helped me to conquer errors. And also in development, you know, you can just attach window.alert onto the handler. And when you're starting to seed out to a couple people, you know, just make it really annoying so that with that small test group, like everybody knows something went wrong. Yeah. Kind of reminds me of, of old school IE, right? That would actually pop up and be like, script error, you know. <laughs> And it's like, well, that's actually kind of good for developers because when it was running on your machine, you pretty much couldn't deploy with pop-ups appearing. And then the errors kind of got relegated down to a console output and are easy to ignore. Um, I wanted to ask John, has creating and running this error tracking service changed the way that you write code in your personal projects? Um, To be honest, the biggest change has probably been that I think a lot more about software performance from the get-go now. So I used to be, you know, very uh, diligent at just, hey, what's the bare minimum that's needed? And, you know, I was very pragmatic. Uh, So I'm just generally more aware about being slammed with lots of use. In terms of, say, around structurally and crash reporting, 
I don't think it's changed too much, to be honest. It's probably more a case that I found higher value in things like continuous integration and automated deployment so that when something comes out of an error tracker or something that I can actually make a fix and ship it out really quickly. That's kind of probably the big one for me. All right. Well, if we there are no more questions, let's go ahead and get to the picks. AJ, what are your picks? So I feel like you disproportionately call on me first, but maybe that's because I just never prepared and I always feel that way. And maybe I, anyway, I don't, uh, I don't love you the best. I don't have too many awesome picks today. Well, I guess I do have some awesome picks, but they're self picks. I've been working on this project called LDS connect. And if you're LDS and you know what that means, then this is interesting to you. And otherwise it's, it's not, but it's an API around LDS.org so that people could build apps for, uh, in the church, we have this thing called home teaching where it's kind of just people checking in on each other, make sure everybody's okay and that kind of stuff. So kind of to build apps around some of those organizational issues that we have. And, and now that's open and available. And I've talked with some people that actually uh, work at the church that are really excited about it. And we're, we're hoping to see like some collaboration and maybe even merging in some distant future, but that's, that's up and going. So if you happen to be LDS and you're interested in, in creating apps that work with member data, then check it out. Cool. All right. Dave, what are your picks? All right. I have two picks for you today. First one is actually an anti-pick. I just wanted to un- anti-pick JavaScript promises because they are so 2014. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. The new oh. hotness that all the cool kids are using is, of course, async and await, ES6. Anyway, promises are dead, people. All right, my next pick is a TED Talk. It is a talk about nothing. The speaker spends his entire time talking about absolutely nothing. Uh, he even gives facts and figures about nothing, and you will learn nothing from it. And I highly recommend you watch it because it is very informative. And you can find the link in the show notes. Those are my picks. All right, Jameson, what are your picks? I have only a single solitary pick today. The soundtrack from a video game that just came out on PS4 and Vita. I don't have either of those, so I can't play the video game. But the soundtrack is on Spotify, and it's pretty good. It's called Ollie Ollie 2, um, and the soundtrack is just good coding music, just chill electronic music. I think I need to get into a different genre. I'm going to pick heavy metal next week because every week I pick chill electronic music. <laughs> it's, all, it's all I got in life, though. Is it Ollie as in the skateboarding trick? Yeah, but it's spelled incorrectly. How is it spelled? I will will post it instead of say it out loud. Excellent. Joe, what are your picks? I'm going to pick the movie Jurassic Park. We watched it last night with my family. I've got teenage girls who've never seen Jurassic Park before. And Jurassic World's coming out. And since I have teenage girls, they have to see everything that Chris Pratt is in. So they have to see Jurassic World. And it's a crime to see Jurassic World without seeing Jurassic Park. And it was just a good movie. It does look a a little tiny dated, but good movie. Did Jurassic Park come out before your kids were born? Just say it. Um, Well, actually, I'm not sure. Like, my oldest is Uh, 16, so... It did. (laughs) did. We're so old, dude. Oh, Oh my gosh. (laughs) So old. So that's gonna be I, I'm, that's gonna be my my first pick, and then I'm gonna pick uh, NG Vegas, of course, because 
I just love the opportunity to work on this awesome conference in a really cool venue. And the big thing that I think is going to be awesome, or one of the things that's going to be awesome is John Lindquist is going to do an all-day workshop on Angular 2, which will be super awesome. I hope that I can go and watch because I think that he's a great teacher. That could Even be though really I've been awesome. playing around with Angular 2 for a while, but he is he's a super good teacher. He really is a great instructor. So I'm excited that we were able to work out a deal to get him down there to teach everybody Angular 2. And those are my picks. Awesome. I actually had to go look up who Chris Pratt was. But now that I see his face, I know that I've seen him in movies. Dude, have you not seen Guardians of the Galaxy? I have seen Guardians of the Galaxy, but I don't know <laughs> actors' names. I don't care who these people are. Anyway, um, you know that Nathan Fillion was in Guardians of the Galaxy, right? <laughs> okay, I know some of these actors' names. Anyway, I've got a few picks. My first pick is uh, I don't know how to say it. W A S D Code Keyboard. I picked it up online, and I'm really liking it. I got the. I know people get really curious when you say that they have mechanical key switches in it. So I have the Cherry MX Clear key switches, if you care, and I'm really liking it. And then I got none this. of these are ergonomic. No. Can I unpick your pick because they're not ergonomic? Please do not use a non-ergonomic keyboard and destroy your life. <laughs> if you could only see my posture right now, Joe, I am slouched down in a chair. My neck is at probably ninety degrees from my back. I have an ergonomic chair. Who cares about my hands? Exactly. You just need to get the Steelcase Leap or the the Herman Miller Aeron or or Mira, and then you're good. And oh, everything you don't else. Your hands to program. Your back is all you need. That's right. Oh, I, I, I no. still have ten toes. But the, here's the thing: is that when you use Vim and you <laughs> use one of those PC remap key mod tools, then you don't need an ergonomic keyboard because every keyboard is ergonomic. Let's see how much we can Bogart Chuck's picks more. <laughs> I know he, he and I, I'm offended by the Vim reference. So anyway, uh, I also got this really fat wrist pad to go in front of it because, yeah, it's kind of a tall keyboard. And so this kind of leveled it up nicely. And I really, I'm really liking it. It was like an eight, $8 foam pad I got off Amazon. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. To uh, go with your $150 keyboard. That's right. Cause, cause that's how we roll, right? It's like having a rusted car right next to a mansion. My father-in-law would Dude, do that. Anyway. Keyboards are so 2014. <laughs> I also want to just uh, thank everybody who backed my Kickstarter campaign. I know there were listeners to the show who went and did it. So uh, it did fund. I put up some stretch goals, but by the time you hear this, it'll be too late. And then I've got a couple of books that I've uh, read or been reading. I've recently been reading the book Mastery by Robert Greene, and he talks about all of these different aspects of becoming a master at something. You know, and there are lots of stories in there. I'm really enjoying it. I have to tell you that the first probably 30 minutes to 45 minutes, I'm listening to it on Audible. I, I didn't really enjoy that. But then I really kind of started to get where he was going with it and enjoyed that. So I'm going to pick that. And then I'm also going to pick a book that's been picked on the show before. And that is Ready Player One. I really enjoyed it. I listened to it in like two days on Audible. And it's just awesome. So... Anyway, those are my picks. John, what are your picks? Well, I have a few. Since everybody else has claimed a movie, I thought I would throw up that uh, I recently uh, watched or rewatched uh, The Pirates of Silicon Valley, if you guys have seen that. That's a 1999 movie sort of telling the story of Microsoft and Apple um, in the sort of 80s and 90s, and, and I actually think it does a, a better job of sort of telling, say, a bit of the Steve Jobs story than um, 
that Steve Jobs movie that Ashton Kutcher was in, what was it, a couple of years ago? So that that's my random movie pick uh, going back a little bit. I don't have any code-related picks this week, but I would say um, one thing I've just been playing with a little bit at home, my wife bought me this uh, Little Bits electronics kit uh, for my, my birthday recently, which is at littlebits.cc, and it, it's been quite cool. I do a little bit of electronics work at home, and effectively you get these kits, and they come with lots of little pieces, uh, and so they just snap together with magnets, but you've got things like servos, buttons, Wi-Fi connections, what else you got in there? You can get an Arduino one and all that. So I built a, a little clapper so I can actually walk in and you know clap my hands. It hears it, and with the cloud kit piece, it actually pings their server, and you can hook it up to uh, if this, then that. Um, and so you can trigger all sorts of things uh, around the house. So it's kind of like a, a relatively inexpensive sort of home automation robotics kind of kit thing and uh, i've been having a bit of fun with that so that's my random pick and everybody in our office would pretty much tell you that i shouldn't give you a music pick because i have horrible taste in music (laughs) (laughs) don't let anyone tell you that music is such a personal thing you have great taste in music i just might not like it i'll back you up on any country music picks (laughs) dude little bits looks really cool Thanks for telling us about that. Yeah, it does. This is actually really super cool. Yeah, I, I'm thinking my wife's a keeper. She's, <laughs> she, she must have done her homework to find this. Uh, it's pretty neat and very easy. You don't need to, so, you know, you don't need to solder anything or do anything like that. It's, you know, you could, you could probably buy this for kids that are probably ten and up, and sort of have them get it. So it's all good. All right. Well, uh, we're going to end the show there. Thank you for coming. We'll wrap things up. We'll catch you all next week. Have you noticed that a lot of developers always land the job they interview for? Are you worried that someone else just landed your dream job? John Sonmez can show you how to do this with the course, How to Market Yourself as a Software Developer. Go to devcareerboost.com and sign up using the code JJABBER to get $100 off. This episode is sponsored by React Week. React Week is the first week-long workshop dedicated entirely to learning how to build applications in React.js. Because React is just the V in MVC, you'll also learn how to build full applications around React with the Flux architecture, React Router, Webpack, and Firebase. Don't miss this opportunity to learn React.js from Ryan Florence, one of the industry's leading React developers. If you can't make it out to Utah, they're also offering a React Week online ticket. Go check it out at reactweek.com. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Do you wish you could be part of the discussion on JavaScript Jabber? Do you have a burning question for one of our guests? Now you can join the action at our membership forum. You can sign up at JavaScriptJabber.com slash Jabber, and there you can join discussions with the regular panelists and our guests. <laughs>